The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. Uh, I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers breaking and headline news, analysis, commentary, and I interview high-profile public figures. Uh, In each show, I also highlight an exceptional organization, such as a charity or a community organization, as well as an individual who's done great work in the community. Um, After headlines today, I have an interview with Aram Hamparian, who is the executive director of the Armenian National Committee of America. Uh, I'm also going to share some excerpts from my recent interviews with Congressman Adam Schiff and Congressman Tony Cardenas. Here are the latest numbers from around the world on COVID-19. As of this morning, the infection rate worldwide stands at 2,392,166 people. Uh, 164,391 people have died from COVID-19 worldwide. Uh, Europe's death toll uh, now exceeds 100,000 worldwide. 614,756 people have recovered. In the U.S., our infection rate is at 756,856, and we've had 40,131 deaths. 69,064 people have recovered in the U.S. from COVID-19 so far. As always, few organizations that I trust for the latest numbers in terms of accuracy and uh, updates uh, are the Johns Hopkins University's website and CDC and the World Health Organization. So let's go over some uh, recent developments and news, but let's start with Uh, The latest from our President Trump, who, as we all know, for six weeks, six precious weeks, he ignored reports and warnings from his own officials about COVID-19 and that we need to be prepared for it, something that he now denies and has these circus-like press conferences trying to do damage control. Most of the time, ignoring, he continues to ignore the advice of medical professionals and experts and contradicts them. Then he's gone on to uh, shouting matches with governors and threatening them. And this latest one, cutting aid to World Health Organization, which is really tragic. He's a scapegoating the World Health Organization because if he can blame something else, someone else, another group, then perhaps he won't look as bad in November. We'll see. He's tried blaming it on uh, Democrats, on China, on World Health Organization, governors, Democrats. I mean, who knows? Who knows what's, you know, what's next? But definitely it just kept, keeps getting worse. Let's move on to a new Harvard University research. According to Harvard University researchers, if the United States wants the economy to open back up and stay that way, coronavirus testing must go up to at least 500,000 per day. 
Testing nationwide is currently at 150,000 per day, um, according to Harvard. And they said that if we can't be doing at least 500,000 tests a day by May 1st, it is hard to see any way that we can reopen businesses. So just over a month since uh, the coronavirus became uh, the extreme case that it has become, state unemployment agencies remained overwhelmed by the number of newly jobless Americans filing for benefits. Around 22 million people, or roughly 13.5% of the labor force, has submitted initial jobless claims since March 14th. According to Forbes magazine, uh, which did a survey, uh, less than half of Los Angeles County residents report having jobs. According to a University of Southern California study, LA has been one of the uh, American cities hit hardest by the unemployment crisis during this pandemic, with just less than half of LA County residents reporting that they held a job in April. The U.S. Department of Labor's latest weekly unemployment report showed 660,966 Californians filed for unemployment, totaling about one in seven Californian workers having filed for unemployment in total. 25.5 million uh, is the number of jobs that the survey suggests have been lost nationwide since mid-March. Since the coronavirus crisis began, 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment. And Goldman Sachs GS analysis expect uh, claims could reach 37 million by the end of May. Uh, experts say it could take years for unemployment numbers to bounce back to pre-coronavirus figures. In locally in LA, Mayor uh, Eric Garcetti announced on Friday that the city is surging a deployment of street medical teams to help to help fight COVID-19 among Angelinos experiencing homelessness. Something that we definitely need in this city. Um, uh, Mayor Eric Garcetti has done an excellent job with his leadership as well as Governor uh, Newsom. The Blunt Post with Vic. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. Well, it's time to get blunt. And my bluntness today has to do with the fact that Republicans are really good at winning elections. Uh, I, I hate that fact, and uh, I wish it wasn't true, but it is. They do win elections. You know, of course, they cheat and they manipulate and suppress voters, etc. But at the end of the day, they win. And so we know how important this election is in November. And I can't help to think, as I watch uh, Trump's so-called press conferences, uh, which are nothing but public relations damage control moves, I can't help to be worried that they are trying to uh, rewrite history as it's happening. You know, like we talk about revisionist history. This is revisionist history happening where Trump is holding these two-hour rambling press conferences and lying about uh, his response to COVID-19 or lack thereof and who did what and said what and the numbers and the testing and the equipment. And the bluntness has to do with 
that the Democrats, that we have to really combat that. We have to combat with not just equal, but even louder uh, voice and uh, make sure that the facts are presented and everyone hears it. And so come November, he doesn't try to spin himself as some sort of a hero or war president as he fancies himself uh, or whatever else. There are very articulate people who are constantly reminding Trump uh, of his uh, inadequacies, and they're great. I mean, some that come to mind are Congressman Adam Schiff, and Congresswoman Maxine Waters, uh, Senator Harris, um, Congresswoman uh, Nancy Pelosi, and many more. We really need to be cognizant and aware that Republicans will do anything and spin anything in their manipulation and public relations um, uh, twist to win the election in November. And of course, we know beyond all the obvious, one of the most tragic things would be the Supreme Court and what that would look like if Trump was to be, get reelected. So um, yeah, we need to really be aware of this for the rest of the year until election and uh, make sure that our friends and family and, and anyone that would listen knows the importance of going out and voting. So there it is. I just got blunt. Let's get blunt. This Friday marks the 105th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide, and it's the first anniversary since the recognition of the Armenian Genocide by both the House of Representatives and uh, the Senate this past November and December. And one of the many people who have worked tirelessly to see this recognition happen has been Aram Hamparian, who is the executive director of the Armenian National Committee of America. And in his role, he serves as the National Advocacy Organization's point person with the administration, Congress, the media, and the Washington, D.C. foreign policy community. The Armenian National Committee of America is the largest and most influential Armenian-American grassroots political organization, working in coordination with a network of offices, chapters, and supporters throughout the U.S. and affiliated organizations around the world. The ANCA actively advances the concerns of the Armenian-American community on a broad range of issues. So Aram, thank you for joining me on the Blunt Post with Vic. Really appreciate your time. It's a pleasure, Vic. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. You were the first person I could think of that I wanted to talk to uh, on what is about to be the 105th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide. But what's also significant is that it's the first anniversary after both the House and the Senate passed the Armenian Genocide Resolution Bill, thanks to you and many others who worked um, for years to make that happen. But before we go into that, I just wanna sort of talk to you about COVID-19. You have a unique perspective being in Washington, D.C. as to what is happening, what the current situation is. Certainly things change every day. So 
we can just say today, how do you reflect on what's happening in D.C. and just in general? Well, it seems like the government is struggling uh, to respond intelligently to the crisis, or at least coherently. Uh, so that's a little bit scary. Uh, but it does seem that uh, despite some dysfunction here in the nation's capital, it looks like, uh, looks like um, God willing, the, the worst is over and, uh, and that we can return to normal at some point soon. I'm not sure when. But uh, but uh, I'm not sure that D.C. has inspired much confidence uh, throughout this crisis, but I think the, mm-hmm. the people have stepped up, and that's, I think that's where I get my encouragement. That's great. Yeah, absolutely. I think yesterday's briefing was just, every time I think it can't get worse, um, yesterday's briefing was just, uh, it was just unbelievable. Two hours of, it was basically an infomercial. That's what it seemed like to me. I don't know about D.C. And, and the states around it. We're lucky in California to have really great leadership that have stepped up, including, of course, as you know, Congressman Adam Schiff and, um, and others, Governor Newsom. Of course. How has COVID-19 affected you and your work and what uh, the Armenian National Committee of America does? It's, it's interesting. For the, the first couple of weeks, the, the city was just in shock. And, um, and literally, there was no oxygen for anything else. Right. But I think a lot of, uh, of your listeners would be surprised at how quickly um, uh, the city got its feet, um, got its feet under, under itself and, and, and kind of and looked around and said, okay, you know, we can't do everything now, but we'll deal with the, the, the COVID crisis, but what else needs to happen? And very soon thereafter, you know, within a few weeks, we saw the foreign affairs people and the education people and the, you know, the, the financial sector people kind of getting back in the rhythm of, of doing their work. So, you know, for example, this, this spring for us is a, is a appropriation season. And for the first few weeks, nobody would take our calls. But after two or three weeks, you know, people started saying, OK, we're, we need to write a foreign aid bill. There's a deadline. You know, there's a September 30th deadline. Uh, you know, let's start talking about this again. And, and we've been pretty engaged for the last month or so on all our issues, like much differently. Obviously, it's mostly by phone and by email and no personal meetings. But the city is functioning and the, the kind of second tier issues are kind of being managed. And, and we're part of that. And to be very blunt, so are the people who are against us. So it's not as though, yeah. you know, if we stayed on the sidelines, things would stay neutral. The, for example, the Ozzy lobby is very aggressive these days. I think they right. are trying to take advantage of, I think, the distractions of the moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, I like to hear that. I have to be honest, I, through the years, watching what you... And ANCA does, I'm, I'm really impressed with it because it's one organization that does what generally will take multiple organizations to do, from advocacy to anti-defamation, media, you know, all kinds of stuff, help, aid, assistance, information. You know, in any other community, any other minority community, ANCA would be like five, six, seven organizations all doing one simple or one specific thing. So I've always watched you. Uh, I've just been impressed by all that you get accomplished. We're, we're like the, I think, a Swiss Army knife of an organization. So there's uh, a tool for everything, I think. Yeah. I think that, oh, that's a, that's a great way to explain it. Absolutely. 
And um, I like the, I like that you said the word blunt. And I want to do I do want to talk about the Azari lobby and what's happening with that also, and and that whole phenomenon of opportunistic persons and organizations right now trying to sort of sneak things in and taking advantage of the crisis. It's happening all over the place. It's happening with the environment. It's happening with the LGBTQ movement. Um, it's happening with abortion and, and just everything else. Before we get into that, I want to ask you, because you, you probably know a lot more than I do, what is the status of Armenia in terms of COVID-19? I mean, I can read, read the numbers, but you probably know more than I would. Sure. Actually, uh, proportionally, Armenia was uh, one of the, the harder hit countries. Um, early on, I think the number of uh, cases and the number of deaths have been you know, high per capita. So when, for example, when the U.S. sent out its first round of assistance, mm-hmm. uh, they listed 65 countries that were the most hard hit, and they included Armenia in that list. And there was a very modest aid package that went to Armenia, about a million dollars. What we're pushing for very aggressively now is for the U.S. government to reprogram existing assistance, not new money at all, existing appropriations to meet this crisis because there's no more urgent priority than helping Armenia contain this crisis for Armenia, for the region, for the world. Absolutely. One of the things regrettable is that we are unable to pause and really acknowledge the fact that the Armenian Genocide Resolution Act was passed. Uh, Of course, it passed in the House, you know, over a decade ago and such, but this is the first time that it passed near unanimously in the House and unanimously in the Senate. And I know, and most of us know, that uh, your work and ANCA's work uh, were instrumental in that. Uh, How do you reflect on that, that we can't really sort of, there's too much going on? Yeah, it is, it is unfortunate, especially uh, as you mentioned, that this is the first April 24th since those resolutions. Just going back a bit, the, the two resolutions from the 70s and 80s, they were one-time resolutions that you know marked April 24th, but the sad thing is that the U.S. government then rolled them back, and through silence they kind of vetoed those standalone resolutions. So that's why we wrote this resolution, the one that passed, locking in forever the U.S. position on the Armenian genocide. That's, I think it's much harder to reverse this either through action or inaction and that's that's a cause i think uh, that we certainly, we certainly fought very strongly for that particular formulation and, but it's true though that that this cycle you know with so much of the oxygen uh, rightfully being uh, sucked out of the political environment because of the, of, the, of the covid crisis people aren't able to focus on other issues including april 24th and, and the armenian uh, genocide issue and that's unfortunate because uh, heading into this april 24th you know we had planned as soon as the Senate vote passed uh, last December, our plan was to how do we leverage the congressional action to get White House action? How do we, you know, add to the legislative branch, the executive branch, and forever banish denial from the U.S. government? Right. And, and that's become a challenge. Like, it's harder and harder to get that done. Not impossible, now, and we're still very aggressively pursuing this, uh, but the, the bandwidth and the sort of the absorptive capacity of the city uh, for campaigns like this is, is is lower than before and that's that's our challenge we have to overcome that but we are we're still looking at april 24th as a day where the executive branch as well can step forward and, and it's much easier than it's ever been i mean the congress made it super easy for the executive the white house to do the right thing right. it wasn't just that 98 percent of congress voted yes 
including every U.S. senator, it was at something like 95-plus percent of Republicans, the president's own party, Correct. voted uh, to reject uh, uh, denial of the Armenian genocide. So this should be a no-brainer for the White House, but you know they're, they're doing their best, I think, to dodge it. They want to copy-paste last year's resolution. You know, For all their criticism of President Obama, uh, Trump's policy is a cut-and-paste of the Obama policy. So I think they're right. the, the lazy path, the weak path, I would argue the cowardly path, is just to carry this forward, kick the can down the road, to, to veto the truth and give uh, Erdogan uh, a gag rule you know, for one more year. Yeah, yeah, well said. I spoke with Congressman Schiff a couple of weeks ago, and he said he reflected on that too. He said it's too bad that we can't really pause and, and reflect on the big success because, as you said, this resolution specifically is a lot more profound and significant. So the House and the Senate have both passed it. Do you consider the U.S. as a country that recognizes the genocide, or does the president have to also acknowledge it? You know, this is a great question, Vic, and, and, and I've heard from very sort of thoughtful, experienced, wise folks on both sides of the argument. We have given credit to countries around the world for, to, for recognizing the Armenian genocide when the parliament recognizes it. So right. all across Europe and, and uh, say Latin America and other countries, even in the Middle East now, have recognize the Armenian genocide through parliamentary action and we give them the credit. Uh, so we're going to give like partial credit to the U.S. Primarily though, primarily because our system is so different and uh, you know, the, the checks and balances system gives the executive branch uh, a primary role on foreign affairs. Mm-hmm. So I think if somebody, if, if we were to say yes, the United States has recognized the Armenian genocide through uh, um, legislative action and past statements by presidents. That would be true. But the, this White House does not deserve uh, any credit for that, certainly. And in fact, their operational policy today is, you know, essentially complicity and denial. I mean, like, so it's a bit of a it's a bit of a gray area. Uh uh, you know, A plus to the Congress, uh, C minus, uh, maybe uh, D plus to the White House. Uh, there's still there's still room to go. We need to we need to turn the page on this denial in a way that that America cannot backslide again. Like in '81, we had a one-off statement from the president, Correct. but then you know, decades of backsliding. We need to what the Congress did. The president needs to do. And then turn the page, and just as there are parts of American history that um, cannot be called into question, no one's going to call into the questions the evils of slavery or uh, the, the, the treatment of Native Americans or the, you know, many other sins of our past, all right, that at a certain point they become accepted history and there's no more backsliding. And we need this to, to, to be treated in that, in that same manner. There can be no going back. So that's, we're like Congress, A+, plus, you know, President, much less. And that's why we're looking for this April 24th to, to sort of check that final box. And then, you know, I think it's like, that would be like, okay, then you have the Congress, you would then have the White House. Essentially all the states, Mississippi is holding out for reasons that are beyond understanding. And then, you know, the, the major media now doesn't use euphemisms in uh, the entertainment industry. You know, we have um, a lot of education and awareness going on. There's like, it's every piece of the puzzle is in place except for the executive branch, which is pretty darn impressive, but it's not enough. And that's why we wouldn't give full, full credit yet. I have to say, one of the things that sort of baffled me was when uh, Senator Mitch McConnell was trying to stop the vote in the Senate, Mm -hmm. 
And yet when he wasn't able to anymore and it went to a vote, he voted yes for it, which is great, but it's just kind of baffling. Oh, no, no. It's, it's such a DC game. This is such a DC game. The way people want to kill things is in the shadows. So if it comes, everyone's, uh, like I would say, I would make this proposition that at any point since the 80s, let's say, when this started you know, becoming a sort of a political issue, at any point since the 80s that this came before the House or the Senate in an up or down vote, it passes. When it was killed in the past, it was killed in, through procedural votes that prevented a vote. Everyone wanted to say, well, this is not the, not the right time to vote, but, and maybe no, precisely because they said it's not the right time to vote because they didn't want to vote, because they knew if they had to vote, they would have to vote yes. So the, uh, that, the whole game, right, is to prevent a vote. But right. once there's a vote, we're gonna win. That's why the gatekeepers are so important. And, and frankly, uh, if there were years where uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, did not bring this up, uh, I, I look at 2007 and 2010, right? right. Uh, you know, she used the argument that, you know, we're not sure we're gonna win. We felt the opposite. We felt that we were gonna win. But God bless her, in 2019, she brought her to a vote and it passed. And in that sense, the gatekeeper was the absolutely essential person here. And she opened up uh, the opportunity for members to vote. And once they had a chance to vote, 405 out of 435 voted yes. And then once the House voted 405 to 11, we knew it was going to pass the Senate. It was just a matter of time. And then, you know, uh, as it went to the Senate, there were these attempts to block it. At one point, uh, and they were put up, senators put up by the president, week after week would block the resolution until Senator Menendez, who's our, our champion on this issue, he went to the Senate floor and he said, I will be here every week until this passes. Yeah. And that signaled everybody, okay, that, you know, you are gonna have to take this on every week for the next year. And nobody wanted to do that, and it went through. He, he said, I'm gonna make you vote, and you will vote. You can vote today, next week, next month, Next year, but you're going to vote. I love and everyone that. Said, yeah, and, and then everyone said, okay, let's do it. You know, it was it was just a, a question of will. It was Speaker Pelosi's will to bring it to the floor, and it was Senator Menendez's will to say, I will never give up. And those two uh, folks, adding, of course, Adam Schiff, Anna Eshoo, Jackie Spear, Frank Pallone, so many others. But if you really think about it, the very core of this effort was Nancy Pelosi on the House side and Senator Menendez on the Senate side. Yeah, I remember watching that and just loving it. Yeah. Uh, even even um, Senator Cruz, whom I don't uh, agree with on most things, it was good. It was interesting to watch him and to to fight for this for this bill. Yeah, I think one of the things that I, I'm still trying to figure out is, and I don't know exactly. Maybe this is just pure coincidence, but the two champions of this issue in the U.S. Senate, the two guys who went to their party and said this has to happen. Mm-hmm. And they were really good. They're behind the scenes. These guys really fought. They're both Cuban Americans, and I'm still to this moment trying to figure out, uh, you know, is that just a, you know coincidence, or is there some solidarity there between you know two peoples who've you know been through an awful lot and you know have kind of have been hardened by history, you know? Sure. Absolutely. I, it was really great that they worked so well together. They're they're they actually respect each other quite a bit, and I we could not have had two tougher champions because they're not the kind of guys who back down. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was really cool watching them day after day. This is Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to The Blunt Post with Vic and my interview with Aram Hamparian, who's the executive director of the Armenian National Committee of America. So um, where do we go from here? Obviously, let me ask you in a different way. If 
President Trump once again either denies or uses the the, the usual uh, words to sort of dodge it. And another, you know, let's say one of the Democratic candidates becomes president next year. Do you have to go through the entire House and then the Senate no, process? No. It goes straight no. to the executive branch. Yeah, House and Senate have spoken definitively. Mm-hmm. The only thing that might they might ever say again on this subject would be, well, let's say taking the, the justice cause for farther down the road on our part. That might be how we uh, ask the House and Senate to move. Or somebody, God forbid, uh, a denier uh, could try to roll back those resolutions and, and offer in a resolution that would reverse those resolutions. I don't see that happening, but the Congress is is locked in on recognition, locked in on rejecting denial. So that's period, end of sentence. We're not going to revisit that fight. We don't have to relitigate that at all. But it does go to the White House. And I do think that a Democratic president, it will be very hard for a Democratic president not uh, to follow the lead of Speaker Pelosi and Senator Menendez, Mm -hmm. uh, given that the support was so broad on the the Democratic side. Add to that, there was a, a turning point a couple of years ago with Samantha Power and Ben Rhodes. Correct. Yeah. Uh, they both apologized, yeah. and they kind of represent not necessarily the the Democratic political establishment, but more the Democratic policy establishment. And this was two of insiders from that system saying this was a mistake. And I think that resonated throughout a lot of the other kind of like foreign policy practitioners who are on the Democratic side. Correct. Um, they're not an especially sympathetic group. I mean. I'm not the Democrat and Republican establishments in D.C. They, they don't like each other, but they have an awful lot in common. <laughs> so I'm not so sure that that's a. They've never been our friend on either right. side, Democrat or Republican. Neither has been our side. But there was some regret shown on the Democratic side that we haven't seen on the Republican side. So I think there are cracks within the Democratic expert world. Right. Uh, and those divisions will serve us well. It'll be harder for them, it'll be harder for denialists on the Democratic side to mount an offensive against us. Um, but it seems like Republicans are you know, perfectly comfortable to mount an offensive against us. But, so I think, I mean, let's say, um, without... Aram, just really quick, yeah. for our listeners who don't, we're not um, familiar with it, what Aram was uh, talking about were the two of President Obama's advisors who at the time advised President Obama not to recognize the Armenian genocide uh, publicly, but later, a couple of years ago, they said that, that was their that one of their biggest regrets. In fact, I believe Samantha went to Armenia, visited the Armenian genocide uh, monument. Yeah, I think she was she was a, a good friend within the system, but you know, didn't prevail. And I think, um, and uh, Obama ended up breaking his pledge. And, and actually, uh, not to pile on President Obama, but he didn't just break his pledge. He then fought against the resolution uh, back in 2010, and he filed a Supreme Court brief that would you know block legal redress for genocide era claims and, and things of that nature. But Samantha Power later, after Obama left office, that that was a mistake. And, and I think that the tide is turning on this issue. It's not just politically um, the right time. It's also the right time within the policy world, given all of that Turkey's doing. So uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens this April. Yeah. Uh, if President Trump decides to, uh, to enforce the Turkish government's veto here in Washington, uh, certainly that will send a very powerful message to Armenian American voters. That, that'll show the type of respect that he has uh, for our community, uh, either to respect the truth or to 
to enforce a foreign country's lies. And then if it doesn't happen this April, then, you know, we start again on the White House uh, uh, January 21st, uh, 2021. Yeah. You know, I have to say this, and this is probably controversial, but my show is called The Blunt Post, so (laughs) I'm not going to hold back. I'm definitely no fan of President Trump, but from a PR perspective, you would think that his advisors would say that recognizing the Armenian genocide, and not that I want anything to help him, however, if let's say I was completely neutral, they would tell him that recognizing the Armenian genocide right now could be the best PR move for him, period. Because one, it will give a little bit of sanity to what he looks like to the world, and also it will change the trajectory and the narrative in the media. It's a human rights issue. You know, the Armenian genocide, as you and I both know, it's, it's, it's a global human rights issue. So many genocides have happened before and have happened after. I mean, I do understand because there's the, the Turkish lobby, there's the oil lobby, there's the, the State Department, the threats, the Erdogan bullying and all of that. But it's his last year, and I think that it would even help him with the election. Not that I want him to be up with the election, but, you know, I'm just talking from like as if I was forced to be neutral in this. Oh, you're making, I think you're exactly right. Uh, Vic, I, I would say that it would be consistent with his idea of America first in the sense that America would be, make, would be writing policies. This policy really is just written in Ankara and then exported to the U.S. and Trump just enforces it. Uh, but if you were to recognize genocide, it would be an authentically American policy, like an America first policy. It would also be consistent with his statements about, you know, standing up for um, at-risk Christians and other religious groups around the world, right? right? This is a great, terrible example, in fact, of a religious persecution, people who were killed, um, you know, uh, the vast majority of whom were, were, were of one faith, who were Christian. Um, so, and then if you this, the, the raw politics of it, look at Michigan. Michigan's a state that very likely will, uh, it'll be very hard to win the, the presidency without Michigan. And, and both parties should be working for that, and Pennsylvania, and Ohio, and Florida. And the usuals, and, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Michigan has hundreds of thousands of Middle Eastern Christians, Armenians, uh, Mediterranean Christians like, like Greeks, uh, Chaldeans, Assyrians, Syriacs, there's all, yeah. several hundred thousand, dozens of, of uh, uh, churches from with roots in that part of the world. And if, if he... Uh, so, yeah, and then you have all these things on the side of doing what's right, uh, in addition, obviously, to the moral arguments. And on the, on the other side, you just have... Why exactly would any American president, Democrat or Republican, be loyal to Recep Erdogan, a man who has shown zero loyalty to the U.S.? He disdains and, in fact, is flagrantly flaunts his uh, disdain for the U.S., and yet American leaders have been, you know, slavishly loyal to this guy in, like, this kind of asymmetrical, you know, irrational relationship where, you know, they get away with everything, and, 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 and but we forgive everything. Yeah, he's the, Erdogan is uh, Donald Trump East. <laughs> Very good. You know, the exactly right. dictator yeah. of the, the bully, you know, the bully yeah. that bulldozes and just keeps going, and everyone sees it, everyone talks about it, but somehow no one sort of stops him. And, uh, you know, Turkey's been milking their strategic location and the U.S. air bases and, and this and that for decades. And a lot of lip service is given to human rights. But, you know, a lot of times when it comes down to doing it, uh, it's a whole other story. So I want to, since I just said human rights, I remembered that I wanted to ask you something else, too. And I know that 
obviously, you know, ANCA, if one were to read your mission, you do so much more, than, as, as I said, you do so much more than what an advocacy or organization like you would do, but sort of you've stepped up and sort of been, uh, as you said, the Swiss Army knife. <laughs> Um, as a gay Armenian American, I have to, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you this. Is there room for, and, and you probably know where I'm going with this, is there room for LGBTQIA Armenians in the larger, on the table, to be invited to the table? Oh yeah, and, and they, they, Vic, they, they are at the table, and through basically every level of organization, including national level, including regional leadership, and our local chapters and our activists. So I don't like, mean Anka yeah. at all. Okay. I, I, I know about your reputation. Sure. I just mean in general, uh, it, you know. The answer, is, the answer is yes. And where we fall short, we should fix that uh, because um, first, it's the right thing to do. The idea of um, anyone being excluded or even feeling that they might be excluded if they came forward uh, based on who they are is is offensive to, to me and to everybody. Uh, that's number one. There's the, the human and the moral dimension. And then there's the, I mean, let's, I, I'm a political guy, so then there's a political dimension, which is, do we or do we not need every last Armenian soul, every last ounce of Armenian spirit, uh, wherever that Amen. resides, in all of our, like, rich diversity? You know, like, we are, sadly, have a history of, of drawing lines, even among our small tribe. Right. And you have, you know, Balsa highs and Bashka highs and Beirut season, Halep season. And then you have when did your family arrive? And then when did your family arrive? And which church do they go to first? And then, like, this, right. this endless matrix of like ways we can divide up and slice and dice uh, this world. And then you add to that, you know, issues of, of orientation and, and gender and, and, and things of that sort. And it just, they're all about division. And I can tell you that almost every fight that we fight in Washington. Uh, the, the the primary asymmetry is that we're a small group. We have a lot of energy, a lot of focus. We have a good plan. We have you know no end of determination, but we're small. And the numbers that we can deliver in terms of activism and volunteers and and, and all that sort is is limited because of the size of our community. And the last thing we did need to do is to divide it further. So yeah, I I I, I, uh, I when here's the thing. One thing we do well, I think, is that when people come to the table, they, they sit at the table, all Armenians sit at the table as equals. What I think where we fail, and I, I take my own share of blame for this, is, is not making sure that everybody knows that there is a place at the table. And and it's, you know, the table is where the work gets done. So it's not like necessarily uh, um, some, uh, it, it is, the we need work done, we need everyone to be part of the work. And where um, our particular work isn't you know, high on someone's priority list, that's fine. There's a million other things that need to happen in the cultural sphere, in the language sphere, in the youth groups, in the, there's like endless amount of work. But within our work, ANC work, and other aspects of community life, I think we all have to do a better job, myself included, to make sure everyone knows that Tudapase in Armenian, we say the door is open. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Honestly, I, I knew... Um, how you were going to answer that, but I thought that it would be important for listeners to hear it from you, someone who's super well respected, um, you know, who who just basically said it all that needs to be said. So my question definitely wasn't for ANCA or no, you or anything else. Um, I, <clears throat> you know, I I write about. Uh, um, 
social justice issues and human rights issues sometimes. And uh, a few times I've written about uh, homophobic incidents or uh, lack of investigation of uh, anti-LGBT hate crimes in Armenia, and I've gotten a really bad reaction. And a lot of times, LGBTQRA Armenians are sort of treated like second-class citizens uh, in Armenia itself, as well as diaspora. And I believe that it's part of my responsibility as an Armenian-American, as a gay man, uh, as a member of the queer community, to, to call out anyone and everyone and including my own community, including, you know, if someone is gay, if they're doing something wrong. And, um, you know, I've, I've even had people who've rebuttaled me on things. And when they can't sort of rebuttal me anymore, they'll start attacking my Armenianness uh, because my last name doesn't end with I-A-N and then I have to go through that. But one of the things that you know, I was told, I, I have to say, I'm, I'm a big fan of Prime Minister Pashinyan. Um, he's exactly what Armenia needed, and I love so much of what he's doing. But one of my criticism of uh, his regime was right after, a few months after he um, became prime minister, there was that mass gay bashing in Armenia where 30 members of a small town had attacked uh, nine LGBT activists, and there was no investigation. It was completely ignored. And of course, the following February, there was a, another high-profile gay bashing of someone that I know, and there was no investigation. And authorities had basically dismissed him. And the reason I'm telling you this is because I'm sure you know about it. When I wrote about it, some I got criticism from the Armenian community saying, Armenia has much bigger problems to solve and discuss than the LGBT issue. And I thought, and I told them, I said, listen, it took decades of activism for the US and even the most liberal countries in the world, whether it's Netherlands or Sweden or wherever, to be where they are. Even with a lot of the issues that LGBTQ Americans had lobbied for with President Obama, when President Obama became president, he didn't just give an executive order and everything just sort of took place. It takes time. It takes a lot of getting everyone involved in whether it was um, overturning Don't Ask, Don't Tell and the Defense of Marriage Act. And then, of course, you know, which led to the Prop 8 being um, overturned in marriage equality. So when I was writing about these uh, high-profile gay bashings, I wasn't obviously, to me it was obvious, I wasn't saying President or Prime Minister Pashinyan should light the Armenian parliament in rainbow colors like President Obama did with the White House or, you know, start a parade in Yerevan. We know that it takes time. We know that the country would have to do this very slowly. I said, the only thing I'm asking is that the law be enforced equally for everyone. And just because the victim was gay or queer, why is this being ignored? It's just basically applying the law equally and not ignoring when the victims are, are happen to be LGBT. I, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, the, Martin Luther King, when he wrote his letter from the Birmingham jail, uh, he was disappointed that others would place a timetable on someone else's justice. And he was exactly mm -hmm. right. The idea that so, like asking Armenians 
on any issue, right? Mm -hmm. uh, to defer their claim to justice because there's some other claim upon their attention, you know, because of let's say geopolitical or regional challenges. That's that's that makes no sense whatsoever. That's a recipe for not addressing issues. That's an excuse. It's not a, a reason. So obviously, I mean, that's just that should be dismissed. And and as someone who spends time, let's say, working on the the Artsakh issue, the the last thing we would ever say is, don't worry about making Armenia a better place because we want, because we need Artsakh to be safe. First, Artsakh being safe is, a, is a, the, the work of a lifetime. Second, part of Artsakh being safe is um, a strong Armenia. A strong Armenia is when everyone is invested in Armenia. It's not, we don't create these like artificial divisions within Armenia. But going back uh, to what you said about calling folks out, people deserve to be called out. That's part of the, the back and forth of, of progress and cultural life. And, and people having different opinions and arguing and pushing and pulling and then slowly god willing the arc is in, moves in the direction of justice but another way i have always tried to well one thing that's been important for me is is holding people up as as examples and, sure. and saying you know like uh you know saying this person has delivered this sure. for our cause and for our community for our culture right and then explain who they are and maybe as you're going through that you talk about whatever it is that makes them special or whatever it is that makes them um, unique or makes them different or anything of that sort. Yeah. And then you hold it up and say, and this is what they're bringing to the table, sure. my friends. Before you raise a voice, before you throw that stone, first, you know, are you sinless, number one? Number two, have you brought to the table what they, they're bringing to the table? And then and then just challenge people to say, the, if the cause, if someone says, uh, I believe in the Armenian cause and because I believe in the Armenian cause, I have. I believe we should be divided in this way. It's like no, 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 no. If you believe in the Armenian cause, you believe we should be united, and that means not trying to stigmatize people and put them into, uh, you know, categories of better than and worse than. It's like that's an exercise. That's a, that's playing the game of pecking order, and I am good and you're bad. It is the it's the cheapest and pettiest of games, and I. I wish I could say it was only in one arena, but it falls into so many arenas. Sure. You know, like this is one of our. I mean, I'll, 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 I'll I get upset about these things because the, the the thing that we need as a community, a small, at-risk nation, needs uh, unity and solidarity and to organize. And I know that not everyone likes organizing, organizing or even likes organizations. And if they don't like organizations, they should start their own or do whatever they can on their own. But working together is essential. Right. And working together is like respecting each other and not trying to, you know, have a litmus test of saying, well, I believe in Artsakh, but I'll only work for Artsakh with people who I like to be around. It's like, really? Is that yeah. the depth of your commitment? So, yeah, this is a, a discipline that we need. Yeah. And we really need it. We don't have the luxury of of uh, of categorizing Armenians and, and saying some are eligible to help and others are not eligible to help. We need every last Armenian. That sometimes we talk about uh, Armenians among ourselves. We talk about you know uh, what side are you from? And today, more than anything, the sides that matter are those who are involved and those who are not involved. And we need right. the side of those who are involved to be as large as possible. Amen. Well said. And God knows it. I mean, I can only imagine how much patience uh, it takes you to maneuver through all of those differences. Um, and I do want to mention one of the things you brought up a really good point. One of the things I do on my show is I on every show, I highlight an organization, charity or an individual that does great work in the community. Last few weeks, I've obviously highlighted organizations that are involved with COVID-19 help 
aid, um, like Doctors Without Borders last week and uh, American Red Cross. So um, I definitely believe in giving credit when credit's due. So before we leave, I just want to once say what's next. Obviously, you know, the, the anniversary is coming up on April 24th. And what haven't I asked you or brought up that you'd like to share with listeners and maybe call to action? Okay. Well, first, let me say thank you so much, Vic. This has been a wonderful opportunity, and I very much appreciate it. I would say, like, to, to wrap up, I would say uh, the Justice for the Armenian Genocide is a, is a long-term project. It's an effort by um, a dispersed nation to work against a very powerful state uh, to secure justice. And we're moving the American piece of that in the right direction from hardcore complicity in Turkey's denials toward a recognition of what happened, of the crime that, uh, that happened, and then to eventually the goal is to put America on the side of justice, like proactively empowering the international community, Armenia, the international courts, to secure a just resolution of this crime, because that's, you know, we want to make the victim whole, we want to see what uh, can be returned returned and what cannot be returned uh, compensated for. So that's the ultimate goal is, is justice, and we're moving America uh, slowly but steadily toward uh, uh, working for justice for this issue. Okay, I like that. Any um, call to action, anything that yes. listeners can do? Yes, uh, we uh, at our website, ANCA, ANCA.org slash genocide. Uh, folks can send a letter. Uh, the letter will go to the White House and also to Congress, encouraging uh, this executive branch to do the right thing, to get America on the right side of this issue, to speak truthfully about genocide. This will be a service not just for the Armenians, but for America. It will put America um, on the right side. It would end, finally, this long, uh, you know, very long gag rule, maybe the longest in American history, this long uh, gag rule against, uh, against U.S. policy. Wow. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that. This was, a, this was a, a great pleasure for me too, Aram. Thank you so much for your time. I hope that the best comes or best thing happens on the 24th. We'll see. Thank you so much, Vic. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for your support. You too. Have a great week. Thank you. All right. Bye. That was Aram Hamparian, one of the hardest working people in Washington, D.C. Thank you, Aram. I also wanted to share some excerpts from my recent interviews with Congressman Adam Schiff for this 105th anniversary of the Armenian Genocide uh, for many reasons. One is that uh, there's a large number of Armenian Americans live in his district, and he has been an extraordinary uh, leader and uh, representative for the Armenian American community and his district at large. At least for 19 years in Congress, but also before that, Congressman Adam Schiff has been uh, fighting for the recognition of the Armenian Genocide, and he gave a speech on the House floor that was very moving. Uh, So this was a a big win for many people, including uh, Congressman Schiff. So it was very important for me to um, ask him a few questions about that. Thank you so much for being here. Well, it's great to be with you. I'm Armenian-American, and I have watched you like so many for 19 years crusade to bring recognition to the Armenian genocide, something that so, has been so near and dear to us. And we saw how you fought for that when we saw your speech on the House floor and how, you, how emotionally you got. So I, 
Of course, it, it, this is probably a redundant question, but how did that feel to finally see this happen after 19 years of your hard work? Well, I, I can't begin to tell you uh, how gratifying it was uh, to finally uh, achieve passage of the Armenian Genocide Resolution in the House and in the Senate. Um, as you say, it's something I've been working on for 19 years uh, in the Congress and even further than that as a state legislator. And so many in the Armenian community have been fighting for and praying for and working for for decades. Um, you know, we uh, we took that up uh, in the uh, during the impeachment hearings and trial, uh, prior to the trial, but uh, after the hearings. Uh, and because of the intensity of everything go- going on in Congress, it was hard to be able to step aside and truly appreciate the magnitude of that achievement to put the United States uh, on record uh, now um, squarely in favor of uh, broad recognition of the facts of the Armenian Genocide. Um, I had always hoped that we might be able to achieve this while there were still some survivors among us, and I think we we barely succeeded in that score. Um, but uh, I know how much it means to the diaspora uh, that was the most directly impacted, and uh, and I'm just grateful uh, for all of their efforts uh, for many years for never giving up um, and uh, and there's more work to be done obviously on this issue um, in terms of restitution but uh, it all begins with recognition uh, and I'm just so uh, delighted and grateful that we were able to get that done finally this year uh, yes sir that was um, an incredible um, moment in history and yes you're right I wish we could have paused for a minute and really celebrated it so maybe for like 20 seconds I'll tell you something a little maybe a little amusing so I just told you how lucky I feel to be in California and to be in LA and to be among the leadership uh, that we have and as a gay Armenian American to live in your district. You can only imagine how much I brag about that, (laughs) that I get to be in the district of Congressman Adam Schiff. And we're grateful. Of course, the LGBTQ community sees you as a hero as well, just as much as the Armenian American community. You know, you've been an inspiration. We've looked up to you. And, um, you know, this is why I wanted to talk to you during this crisis, because what you say has so much more weight than uh, I don't know who else, uh, anyone I can think of. Well, thank you for the, the comments uh, and for the question. That was California's beloved Congressman Adam Schiff. Uh, thank you, Congressman. And next, I have an interview with another very popular SoCal Congressman, Tony Cardenas. Uh, so let's take a listen. Congressman, this is going to be the first uh, anniversary of the Armenian Genocide after both the House and the Senate passed the Armenian Genocide Resolution Act, uh, something that you also championed. So I wanted to uh, thank you for that. Um, And it's a little sad that we can't pause uh, and really acknowledge what happened in November and December both in the House of Representatives and the Senate. And, um, you know, this might be a redundant question, but, you know, how do you reflect back on on this milestone? Well, we have it. look, when you 
look at the Armenian genocide, which did happen, and about one and a half million Armenians were killed by the Ottoman Empire, it's, it's really important for people to understand that we need to look at the truth, we need to call out the truth and admit the truth so that human beings across the world and here in America recognize that a genocide should never happen to one person, much less one and a half million people or more. It's important for us to recognize that as leaders in the world, as a country that should be exuding leadership, we need to recognize the truth and we need to set politics aside and we need to help the healing happen. Healing of the people in the world today, healing in Turkey, healing of the Armenians uh, around the world so that they can understand that the world respects and appreciates that we're all human beings and that we all have a history. And whether our history was that we were affected by people trying to commit genocide on us just because of who we are, that that needs to be uh, open to the public and that we need to be honest about that. One thing that I want to say about this is, is I was very fortunate that when I was in the state legislature, I was uh, serving with Adam Schiff, who's a representative right here in the San Fernando Valley and in, in right. part of Los Angeles. We serendipitously happen to be serving together in the state legislature. We actually have a bill. It's named the Schiff Cardenas Act, which doesn't have to do with the Armenian genocide. So we have a history together. But I was so happy to support the, the bill in the state legislature in California to recognize uh, openly the Armenian genocide. And then also Adam Schiff is a leader now in, in Washington. And now I'm able to serve with Adam Schiff in the House of Representatives. So I just want to give a shout out to Adam Schiff for always being there for every community mm -hmm. and also carrying the mantle to make sure that we do not let um, uh, lies prevail and make sure that the truth prevails, that the Armenian genocide did in fact happen and that atrocity it was real. It is real in the hearts and in the minds of Armenians and people need to recognize it. So. So it's my pleasure to do that. And to me, it's just one of the many, many things that we'll continue to do. Uh, um, no matter what's going on in the world, we need to be consistent. And we're going to do this again next year and keep uh, recognizing and making the world understand that, that the Armenian genocide is something that it needs to be recognized for, for the truth that it is and that it should never, ever happen to any people ever again. Thank you, Congressman Tony Cardenas, for uh, being with us today on The Blunt Post with Vic. So I decided to feature um, ANCA as the organization to highlight for today's show uh, the executive director of ANCA, which stands for the Armenian National Committee of America. Uh, Aram Hamparian was my guest. And, um, you know, as we heard, he does a lot of uh, advocacy, a lot of grassroots work, um, I think, beyond for the Armenian American community, but all progressive communities. Uh, that's really important. So uh, if you uh, enjoyed what he had to say and you want to uh, get more information or even make a donation to ANCA, which is a nonprofit, you can go to their website, which is anca.org. That's anca.org. Thank you. Well, since today's program has been about the Armenian Genocide, I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes of all time, which is from the great Elie Wiesel, who said, We must always take sides. Neutrality helps the oppressor, never the victim. Silence encourages the tormentor, never the tormented. That profound statement applies to 
so many different things, uh, not just the Armenian genocide, but of course the Holocaust, as well as other genocides of the 20th century and beyond, such as the Cambodian, Rwandan, uh, Chilean, and other genocides, Assyrian. But it's also true of things that are happening now and how people uh, turn a blind eye. This is true during the... This came up, actually, during the Me Too movement when uh, a lot of abuse and sexual harassment and uh, uh, sexual violence was revealed. And we all asked, how about the people who saw this? How about the people who coordinated it and aided in it? Why weren't they doing anything and seeing anything and saying anything? Uh, and it's happening now with uh, with our uh, politics. You know, supposedly Republican members of Congress, some of them at least, are sort of secretly not happy with Trump and not, you know, they they see what we see. But yet the fact that they're not speaking up, the fact that they're not, they don't have the courage and the leadership to go against their party and do what's right uh, speaks volumes. And uh, so the abuse keeps happening. So two weeks ago, I announced that I would be doing a segment where I either answer a question or read a statement sent to me from a listener. And I wanted to make sure that I get to uh, the first person who sends me anything. And um, of course, I'm I welcome any kind of a comment, uh, positive or negative, any feedback um, is appreciated. And uh, so I did receive my first email that very morning, and it's not very complimentary, but I'm going to read it. And it's from a gentleman by the name of Don Salas. And he said, and I quote, Sadly, I turned in for the first time to your radio show when you were bashing the president on his lack of leadership regarding the handling of the COVID-19 issue. I completely disagree with your assessments. I believe he is positioning the right professional people combating the virus, end quote. That's from uh, Mr. Salas. Thank you for sending that to me. It's a very polite um, statement. He may not uh, appreciate or uh, agree with uh, what I've been saying about uh, Trump administration's disastrous handling of this situation, but you know, he sent a very nice and polite uh, email. So <laughs> I, I just can't fathom that at the end of the day, we are the most powerful and the wealthiest nation in the world, and that our response to this virus has been so catastrophic, to say the least. And a lot more will be revealed later um, as to... Uh, all the damage that it's caused, you know, I respectfully disagree with you, Mr. Salas. I think uh, Trump has just done a terrible, terrible job and a terrible disservice to the American people in the way he's handled this. Um, so again, if, you, um, if you'd like to send me a question or a statement, a comment, you can always reach me uh, via email. You can send it to vjarami at kpfk.org. Again, that's V for Victor or Vic, uh, Jerami, G-E-R-A-M-I, 
at kpfk.org. I appreciate your questions and feedback and comments, and I will read at least one of them every week. Well, that was the show. And before we go, I want to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, who has been incredible in the last few weeks, as he always is, and now doing so much uh, from home. And uh, so I'm very grateful for Ricky. For another episode, uh, for more information, you can visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And both of those handles are at Vic Jarami, at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. And feel free to send me your comments or uh, questions. Uh, You can email them to me at vjarami at kpfk.org. Have a safe, healthy, and successful week. The Blunt Post with Vic.